this explains the transformation, and this gets back to the tension that we're always dealing with, where it's like Sweden, Sweden, the tension we're the always, tension dealing. We're always <laughs> dealing with. I'm Charlie Sohn, a screenwriter and journalist. I'm Agnes Reese, a pop singer and songwriter. And this is Mysteries of the Euroverse. On this episode, we're talking about Eurovision as a technological spectacle. First, we deep dive into how technological innovation at Eurovision has supported the contest mission of uniting Europe, as Ukraine's creative director for Eurovision 2023, Herman Nenov, gives us a look behind the scenes. Second, we interview Suri, the UK's 2018 entrant who finished her number in triumph after her performance was violently and suddenly interrupted. Finally, New York's premier stunt queen, Izzy Uncut, stops by to talk about what makes for good spectacle at Eurovision in a game we're calling Cooter Smash or Cooter Pat. Take a look behind the scenes at all the scandal songs and queens. So come along as we traverse all the mysteries of the Euroverse. Okay, we are back with another episode of Mysteries of the Euroverse. Magnus, how are you? Spectacular. Because we're talking about the spectacle that is Eurovision. There's a spectacle? I've only listened to it via audio. You just learned that it's a TV show. (laughs) There's an article on the Eurovision website, and it talks about the origin of the competition. It says, The Eurovision Song Contest began as a technical experiment in television broadcasting. The two stated ideas of what Eurovision is, a technological experiment and also a public institution that was meant to bring Europe back together, are one and the same. Because... Bringing Europe together as one is not a thing that had happened before, and it required the use of new technology. Eurovision started in 1956. Five years after the first national television broadcast in the U.S., the EBU puts together this collaboration between seven different broadcasters. All of these broadcasters from these different countries have to work together. The 1956 Eurovision had to be in Switzerland because each country could only be so far away. So in 1967, you have the first multinational, multi-satellite television broadcast that ever happened. So the multi-satellite means you can reach much further. This 1967 event I'm talking about, it was called One World. Now, who was behind it, Charlie? The EBU. Even in the title, One World Broadcast, there's a purpose to it. Increased sense of community, increased sense of cultural exchange. Yeah. The next big technological chapter is 1997. This is the first year the televote was used. And this is pretty early for using a televote. Only five countries did televote in 1997. 1998, they made it the preferred method. In 2014, they introduced app voting. The Launch of app voting was the first step in getting to where we got last year with the rest of the world vote, which takes this idea of bringing people together even further. All of these innovations are based on how do they knit the countries that are in Eurovision closer together, right? Right. The thing that defines Eurovision in the modern era is bringing together not seven countries, but upwards of... 40 countries. The art of putting together Eurovision is the art of coalition management, right? And this connects back to the televoting, the multi-satellite broadcast, all of these other elements. If you ever felt overwhelmed by a group project in school, try to do it with 37 artists, delegations totaling in the three, four hundreds. The set designer of that Liverpool set is Julio Jimete. His concept for the design extends out into the audience. There are these wings that kind of encompass the arena. And he thinks of it like a hug to Ukrainians. The real genius of that Liverpool set has nothing to do with we're extending a hug to Ukrainians. Right. They have to do something creative. But then on top of that, they have to create a space that's entirely flexible The back panels of this set are video screens on one side that then can rotate around and they're covered in lights. If you're an act who wants a ton of lights, you rotate the panels one way and you get lights. 
If you're using video, they rotate the other way and uh, you get video. The floor is screens as well, so you really have a lot of flexibility. One thing you need to do is you need to mark every space on the floor where you're going to need to put a set piece. So in the original Eurovision and in theater productions, you lay down spike tape, right? This act needs a piano that's then going to burst into flames. This gets complicated when you have 26 acts who yes. all need things dragged out. How many different color spike tape can you find? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the thing that's amazing that the screens on the floor allow you to do, a number ends, the spike marks show up for the next number. The 30 stagehands at Liverpool who are ready to change from one act to another in 40 seconds rush out. They put the things where they and need to go. So and so clear. The triumph of the Liverpool stage is the fact that every artist could figure out a way to do what they wanted to do. We went to your version for the first time together, but I'd seen these YouTube videos of what happens when they try to reset the stage between numbers. And it's absolutely crazy what they have to do. There are certain things that make this easier. The first thing is postcards, right? Essentially, before every act, you get a little introduction to the artist you're about to see somewhere in the host country, right? right? Comparable to that being is, oh, you're about to see this American Idol audition. And then they throw it back to their hometown and you yeah. get a sob story. These postcards were developed in 1970 to fill out the broadcast. Right. The broadcast was in danger of being too short, yeah. <laughs> a uh, danger that Eurovision has left behind <laughs> as transitioning between acts became harder, you needed something to cover. You can talk about the evolution of Eurovision through the idea that the postcards went from filling out a broadcast right. to covering up the transitions. We should talk about the allocation draw. The allocation draw used to be that you draw your exact number in the running order. Right. You pick five and you are number five. There are a lot of beliefs that where you perform over the course of the night in Eurovision affects your result. The final act in the semifinals statistically get through 80% of the time. Yeah. There was something in the randomness that allowed people to be like, somebody has to go first. If it's totally random, I can buy it. But the problem is that sometimes randomly by pulling these numbers you end up with the two hardest set pieces back to back. So they did a draw that is who's going to be in the first half of the semifinal, who's going to be in the second half of the semifinal. And then within those confines, the production team can make decisions. Right, And you can know this months in months advance. Months in advance. Then there's a grand finale. They do that allocation draw Thursday, quite late after the broadcast is done. They have the jury show on the Friday night, which means that they have a morning and an afternoon to essentially program a four-hour long show. Thank God they have those video screens with the spike tape. <laughs> the stage design for Torin, what was referred to as the sun, a tiered semicircle yeah. that could spin each tier independently. It was almost like a rainbow where each color band could rotate. The postcards basically give 40 seconds to reset between numbers. Yeah. Here was the problem. The sun took more than 40 seconds to reset. Right. Yep. The alternative that the EBU went with was a black void. You had all these artists with planned beautiful projections if we could only see it behind the sun. Yeah. This is where it gets back to what we kind of touched on where this idea of what is your responsibility as a host nation. Yeah. The Turin set design did not understand the assignment in the way that the Liverpool set design did, right? The real artistry of Eurovision, it's not innovation for its own sake. It is innovation for the purpose of how do you take 37 countries and find a way for them all to be in the same city competing and feel like they all got a fair shake. Even more complicated was the pandemic, 2021. It was like doing Eurovision three times over. There's step one, right? 
Are you going to get out of your country? Is there going to be a lockdown? So for that, every act had to make a live on tape performance. Then you get to Rotterdam. What if you get COVID right before you're going to perform live in the arena? So they had to refilm all the acts in Rotterdam, in the arena. The Australian broadcaster decided to use Montaigne's live on tape. I think this is one of the most amazing things about Eurovision, right? Which is that the technical achievement is amazing. But we look at the last three years, right? We've had a contest delayed because of an invasion of the winning country. The the two years before that, we've had a contest that essentially was hobbled because of a global pandemic. In facing these challenges, somehow it's able to go on. Some of the hardest parts of European history, or at least recent European history, Eurovision has had to live through. Yeah. Um, And when we add this element in, you go, wow, that's another layer. Eurovision shouldn't be possible. Yeah. But it just keeps happening. Well, and most recently, it happened against the backdrop of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. The war turned a logistically complicated process into a coordination challenge of epic proportions, which is why we were so excited to get a peek behind the curtain with Herman Nainov, Ukraine's creative director for Liverpool 2023. And special shout out to friend of the pod, Sashko, who helped us out with translation. Herman started the process from a creative place thinking about what he wanted to say. Yes. So when he became the creative director of Eurovision, he drew himself a little chart. In the center of the chart, he had a portrait of Ukraine. And we think, like, metaphorically speaking, the the parts that would stem out of this portrait, they wanted to show what Ukraine looks like now. For many years, the symbol of Ukrainian culture was very stereotypical. It was the woman in Ukrainian clothing with a flower crown and the ribbons in her hair. It was a very surface-level stereotype. It was Herman's idea to do the digital metro moment where Kalush was in Kyiv. Um, and so this idea of the metro line uniting all the people, the first week of the full-scale invasion, all of the televised programming and all of the shows that would have happened in Ukraine were in the subway stations down below. It was for safety of the people that were involved in the creation process and all of the audiences. So this idea of a metro line was really symbolic. But considerations very quickly moved from the artistic to the practical considerations of how to coordinate between two public broadcasters 1,500 miles away from each other. So with the lighting designer, um, the process was pretty automated. Once they knew all of the Ukrainian numbers, they started working pretty much straight away. From a creative side, trying to make those initial decisions, that was around October through February. And then February until May, they were working diligently, programming. Everything was online. It was all in one program. Everyone saw the changes immediately because they were able to put in edits right into the online program. They actually had weekly meetings. Because of the war, there were a lot of factors that could have disrupted these meetings. But the Ukrainian team was there every single week. They would take the calls from bomb shelters. If they had any big decisions that had to be done, they would do electronic voting. Even in the process leading up to Eurovision, Eurovision is very dedicated to a a robust voting system. (laughs) It's very cool that 90% of the time the votes would be identical. The teams were actually on the same page most of the time. Sometimes the Ukrainian team and the English team were working on the same idea. And then when they would come together, they would actually put those two ideas together. There was actually a Bible, a document of every number where everything was described by the second. And so there was a section in this document where Herman wrote his ideas and what he wanted to see as well. Then they would test it out in a studio 
and then they would also get it on stage in rehearsals and work it out. Despite the level of organization, challenges still cropped up in the most surprising places. The department that we haven't touched on that was the most difficult was the costumes department. Because all of the costumes had to be made in the UK. There were actually a lot of ethnic Ukrainian outfits in the grand final. It was really important to show the rethinking of Ukrainian clothing and attire into street style of what Ukrainians might be wearing today. And so all of the artists were dressed by famous Ukrainian fashion houses and fashion designers. And also for the Kalush number, the whole number started with a Ukrainian famous embroidery, then it would come apart by the strings. And every single country's flag that would come up would also come apart by the strings. And this was symbolically showing that Ukraine is sewing together the future of the free world, the future of democracy, and the future of Europe. Eurovision is normally complicated. In the middle of a war, even more so. Everything was delayed to the point where they had to start designing the set before they even knew what city, and therefore what arena, the contest was going to be in. And that's not all. There was a version of the contest where Ukraine wasn't going to be in the postcards at all. It was a challenge because a lot of parts they wanted to film, they weren't able to film in Ukraine. The first challenge was the format of how they were going to be able to pull this off in the first place. So it was decided by Suspina that in order to get these shots, they were going to do it from a flying camera. They were unable to film in certain places for the war. So they had to ask every single location that they would film in. They had on their list ideas to film in Odessa, in Kherson, in Mykolaiv, but they were unable to get the permissions. Herman, I just want to say thank you so much for helping us understand a little bit of the enormous task it is to put on a show like you did. This was really incredible, Herman. And Sashko, thank you. Thank you so yes, much for thank helping you, Sashko, you. as well. Euroverse. Okay, well, I think we should get to our next guests. First, we got Suri, who represented the UK in 2018. Her performance was one of the few times that this well-oiled machine of Eurovision spectacle came to a halt as she was violently interrupted by a man who rushed the stage. Then, New York's premier stunt queen, Izzy Uncut, drops by to evaluate show-stopping performances at Eurovision in a game inspired by Izzy's signature move. We're calling it Cooter Smash or Cooter Pass. But first, let's hear a bit of Surrey's 2018 Eurovision entry, Storm. We can hold our hands together through the storm, oh, oh, through the storm, oh, oh. Storms. Not sure what they're going to do now. Spread your love. Give all you got. Hold your head up. Don't give up. No, no. We are here with Suri, who represented the UK in 2018 with Storm. 2018 was the first Eurovision that I had ever watched, and wow. Storm was a hundred percent my favorite song of the night. And then recently, when I started to dive deeper into your material, I was completely unprepared for the experience. Literally, I cried multiple times while listening to... I did get a text about that, so I can verify it. I was like, I can't be alone right now. (laughs) I wanted to start with that first album, Something Beginning With. Can you talk about Cher? And actually, first, let's hear a little bit of the song. If I believed like you Bless you. My personal life was going through some really big changes. That whole album came out of really quite a turbulent time. One relationship was ending at that time. There was a pull and pull to that because it was a relationship I'd been in for a really long time. And so there was so much love and gratitude there, even though we knew we needed to actually part. 
there was a huge confusion in my heart. And that was definitely stalling me professionally. I so wanted to believe in myself as much as they believed in me, knowing that then we could really make something and be something. I think my life needed to implode a little bit for me to get my stuff together. <laughs> that, uh, that resonates. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> you have this cover of Lover, You Should Have Come Over, and it's so beautiful. Can you talk about what inspires you about Jeff Buckley's music? The poetry of the lyrics. Jeff Buckley, Joni Mitchell, Carol King, Tori Amos, they are the writers that speak to me. And it's a freedom and courage to not conform to whatever commercial sound or style or formula the outside world and industry is sort of demanding. We're just trying to make sense of the human experience and the world around us. And there's a hell of a lot to try and encompass with that human experience of the world around us. I do feel a hell of a lot. And I think perhaps with the imagery and the metaphors, it's easier to put it like that rather than articulate some of the experiences that we have. Moving to Eurovision, 2018 wasn't your first time at Eurovision. I graduated from the Royal Academy of Music and was invited to audition for a troupe of backing singers and dancers for Loïc Notet, who was going to represent Belgium in the 2015 contest. They thought that we would have the sort of skills that Eurovision might require. Sort of a musical thesis stamina, being able to sing, dance, do that stadium experience with all the intense rehearsal schedules. And he was right. I didn't yet know what Eurovision entailed, but it does take an athleticism with your vocal health, with your physical, mental health, everything. I was successful in auditioning for that troupe. Had a phenomenal time with the Belgians in Vienna 2015, nice. 2017. I was invited back to be a part of that with Blanche and City Lights. Performing on that scale, on that stage is like no other thrill. And so, of course, I got a fire in my belly of well, I'd love to do this, not just in the background. It was at the 2017 contest that I was fortunate enough to meet some of the BBC lot backstage and just started chatting and started working through the rest of 2017 as a songwriter for them. And things just happened that by the end of 2017, I, I received a call I was not expecting to consider being one of the participants for You Decide. 2018. So this episode is about production and the spectacle at Eurovision. And one thing that we talk a lot about on the show is how Eurovision needs a specific kind of song. I was thinking a little bit about what that must have been like as an artist. There were certainly times of confusion and times of conflict creatively. Creatively in the writing rooms leading up to 2018, there was a completely different world I'd stepped into. And not all of it felt like a huge fit to me. I'll be completely honest. There were formulaic hit factory aspects to the songwriting, which I just didn't feel really suited me. Everything led on though, and Storm came to me and I adored it. And I knew there were certain aspects of it that I just needed to embrace and own and do my very best with, knowing that post the actual contest, it might be a challenge to take some of the audience then back to my gigs. Something that I loved about the arena experience was the elevation of everything, just how vast it was. Something that surprised me was the distance between yourself and the audience. I love a venue of 200 capacity where you can see the whites of each other's eyes. You can see the emotion on people's faces. It leads me on actually to remember as well the camera work. So that was definitely new as well, that although Eurovision is this phenomenal live show, so many people watch it as a TV show, as a broadcast. And for me, that challenge, which was a brilliant one, I loved it, of working the cameras and letting that vulnerability show. It was always really real for me. As we're talking about Eurovision production process on this episode, one thing we also discuss is when that sort of machine stops, as it did when your performance was interrupted. Can you talk about that moment, how it felt and how you were able to push forward? It was so surreal. Everyone had invested so much in this three-minute performance being, production-wise, 
perfect. Anything to go slightly awry. We were all so invested in that personally. We remember a light bulb not working on one technical rehearsal. Just one of the lights didn't come on. And we were up in arms like, this is awful. We must fix it. This is the worst thing that could ever happen. None of us could have expected this uninvited guest on the actual grand final. What you don't see because the camera's cut away is when security wrestled the guy off stage, the microphone came out of his hands and just rolled back to my feet. It was very strange. It just just rolled back to me. Honestly, it was bizarre. It comes back to my feet. I pick it up and I come back in on hold your head up. Don't give up. Right, Spread yeah. your love. You could see in my eyes how fired up I was. I was livid. I was fuming that something had interrupted this moment. But the adrenaline that I felt charging through my body, helped also by that crowd who were screaming so much love at me and roaring these lyrics. I remember the last 30 seconds of the track way more than the 10 seconds that were slightly (laughs) less than an ideal. I just feel like as an artist in that moment, you're navigating choreography, camera work, song, all that stuff. Someone comes up and like takes the microphone out of your hands. Are you even able to process what you think is happening? Because of the blinding of the lights, I did not see him approaching, which is a good thing. I don't think you want those slow-mo seconds of someone (laughs) running towards you. So his physical presence was certainly jarring, but he was after the microphone. He wasn't after me. I wasn't physically hurt. But because the in-ear monitors that are custom-built to your ear canals, he comes charging in with so much adrenaline and is screaming down the microphone that has been really finely tuned to my ear canals. He's essentially screaming down my ears. And that was the traumatic bit. That was the bit that actually left me with, with damage. That's where you see me just turn away for a moment because for a minute, I didn't know where I was. And unfortunately, my ears have actually never quite been the same. I remember how strongly I felt watching the Oscars when Will Smith and Chris Rock. Chris Rock, yeah. Yeah. When that happened, I was back on stage in Lisbon. Now, that moment wasn't about me, but I found that so difficult to watch. And it wasn't the violence. It was Chris Rock trying to continue. It was trying to continue with the show. It was trying to find the place on the autocue and the words again, and the show must go on. And I know that feeling. I felt that need to carry on when something has then interrupted. Right after you released Taking It Over, it's almost a different career path that probably was very open to you after that Eurovision performance and after all of these fans really getting introduced to you as a pop diva, right? Taking It Over had been written in 2017 on one of these songwriting camps. It felt the right move after Storm in transitioning into more of my singer-songwriter acoustic stuff, but let's not be too jarring too soon for everyone. Let's go a little bit steady (laughs) step by step. There were aspects of Eurovision which of course introduced me to how the tabloid media works when you go for a real commercial route. There were certainly meetings that happened after Lisbon where agencies and big labels and big wigs in the industry wanted a bit of me and wanted to jump on that bandwagon. But the offers that they were pitching to me were quite lucrative but not appealing at all. I did not want to be spread in Hello Magazine, this victim, how hurt he has made me. That didn't suit me. I just wanted to get back to the drawing board and write some new music. The EP you released in 2020, Rye, really felt like Surrey from the beginning back again. The song, I think, in particular, Mm. is such a gut punch. (laughs) This kind of One foot in, one foot out, Mm. knowing that something is not what it should be, but also this real recognition of the pain of what leaving it is going to be. It's been quiet in my head for a while. No craving, no crying, no need to correct. It's okay for you to go I guess You are spot on in recognising that by Rye 
by 2020, I'd kind of was starting to find my way again. I think the words didn't come from me. Now, Bjorn Dobalara, who has been my producer, they are his words. Wow. Now, he's been my closest creative collaborator and person for years now. And actually, to come full circle with your very first lovely question about share and something beginning with this connection with Bjorn and he seeing something in me and recognizing something in me as an artist that I wasn't ready for yet or was resisting or reluctant for, but actually share is also about him. So that kind of gives you full circle, the answer mm. you were asking. Oh my God. Amazing. The thread is so clear between those two songs. It's which him. Is, yeah. It's him. I love that you picked out that track out of all of the songs that you could have. Then we come to Building a Woman. The first two singles, they ask these really big existential questions. They're kind of like two sides of the same coin. When all goes quiet, feels like it's about all you miss when you're constantly running and treading water is this fear of not doing enough with the time you've got. But they both get at the question of how we should live our lives. They are questions I am constantly asking myself and I do not have the answers for and I'm working it out like any of us are. When it all goes quiet, certainly had strands of fame, conversations and Questions over that as well. My ambitions are different to the 18-year-old Suri who thought fame was the thing. And now I really know that making a living out of making music and traveling the world is the most privileged thing. Expanding out to the rest of the album. I think what made it so emotional listening to your work chronologically like that was that there really is this kind of hard-won hope in it that you don't have quite so much in something beginning with, right? I kept thinking of The Right Yellow and Man with a Map as sort of this answer to like share or empty, that yes, it is kind of, <laughs> but no, that it is hard to be loved, but there's a confidence in this album of finding that connection. Like, yes, I know where I'm at. Yes, I might need time, but I ultimately will get there. I want to. my heart is racing in the best way. And for the purpose of any listeners who might be listening to this just orally, I was raising my fists <laughs> in victory. I was lifting my crochet jumper arms up. <laughs> I can't believe you just articulated it so perfectly. And it means the world. I'm actually quite moved at how <laughs> it has resonated I can't believe you listen to everything chronologically as well. It's great, is... and I highly recommend it to our listeners. Thank I, uh, you so much. But have a friend you can text. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Just well, set I up am... the support <laughs> button first. <laughs> I am so enjoying this deep dive with you. I am in a completely different place to the place where I was with something beginning with. The right yellow epitomizes me right now. I know the world is a completely mucked up place. I still desperately hold on to hope. And the fact that you mentioned Man With Map, because again, that song is about Bjorn. So when I oh came my, so to doing is, this... Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> I was like, I feel like this is the next step of this thing. And yes. I know I'm in a particular emotional place, but that's amazing. <laughs> so that... That person who can be that compass for you, personally, professionally, creatively, emotionally, whatever, and have that map and sometimes point you in the direction that you may not even know that you need to go on. Bjorn is that person for me. And that song came from realizing that I love that you picked out that track. From a British perspective, for a long time, it has been this idea that, well, no one's going to vote for the UK. I feel like a lot of people tried to use the result as a way to almost coax you into being negative about Eurovision. Something I've always really appreciated in seeing you in interviews is that you never fall for that. Is this the truth? I had the best time of my life. There were 10 seconds that were slightly challenging, but taught me so much about myself as a human, showed me so much goodness in the people around me. I had the best time of my life. Sorry, thank you so much for this. It has been the most 
joyful. It's been so lovely deep diving Likewise. and discussing I mean, this, all this stuff with you. Honestly, I can't thank you enough. Thank you for your openness. Eurovision Your vision performances are always on the hunt for a wow factor. For a lot of people, that means big sets pyrotechnics, and spending a lot of money. Hamster wheels don't come cheap. Correct. Especially not human-sized hamster <laughs> wheels. Uh, but for some acts, the wow factor rests on the performer. So we want to go through some of the most incredible moments of Eurovision athleticism with a New York performer whose name has become synonymous with all kinds of jumps, flips, and surprises. Drag queen extraordinaire, Izzy Uncut. Hi. You're welcome. You can catch her at Rise, Playhouse, Hardware, Barracuda Lounge, Pieces, and pretty much every other uh, gay bar in New York City. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> stumble into one. She will be there and uh, probably doing a backflip. Or stumbling with you. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one of the um, And also a little fun fact. I mean, uh, Izzy, we've been friends for years. Yes. And I believe I was at the very first drag performance you ever did. You absolutely were. And you look, were like one of the first people that I like became friends with. You were just on Watch What Happens Live. I was. How was that? With Miss uh, Cardamom Beatrice. Miss Cardi B. Uh, <laughs> her birth I didn't know, name. I was going to say, I didn't know her government <laughs> yeah, name. Her government exactly. name. Uh, no, Miss Cardi B was great. The show was great. It's the second time I've done it. I did it with Celine Dion the first time. Uh, what a great Eurovision tie-in. I had no fucking clue. She said in an interview that a lot of the Swiss population were like, why is she representing us? But then she goes, but then I won. So they were fine. <laughs> then they're like, well, you took it yeah. over us. Thanks, yeah. Steve. Thank you so much. But coming back to Izzy, we are going to ask you to evaluate a bunch of Eurovision performances in a game we like to call Cooter Smash or Cooter Pass. <laughs> So that took some work. So that thank was really you. Good. That, when you told me there was a game, I didn't realize that the game was specific. You're like, this is the name of the game every yes. time. I'm, I have a feeling today specifically. It's yeah. Wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be great, though, if we were like, no, it's it's every week. When we're judging you know, vocals, yeah. it's about yeah, it's Cooter, Cooter Smash. Smash. We had Hillary Clinton on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Balkans conflict with a Cooter Pass. <laughs> oh, my God. So, um, Magnus, <laughs> do you want to explain the rules of the game? Yes. Uh, so we're going to play you a bit of a Eurovision performance that features an athletic showcase moment for the lead performer. And we just want you to let us know if the performance is a cooter smash or a cooter pass. All right. Before we start, what, if anything, did you know about Eurovision? I had some friends over and we all were on mushrooms and oh we're like, God. what should we watch? And someone's like, we need to watch Eurovision right now. <laughs> so we started with the Eurovision music videos, which were a fucking trip. <laughs> I was taken into somebody's world every five minutes. It was just a completely different experience. I was like, slay. <laughs> mushrooms. I mean, Magnus mostly, but then and mushrooms were my entryway into Eurovision. <laughs> I, I can't tell uh, which of the performances that I saw actually happened. Yeah. Um, but they, they, they were You're like, what's like, yeah. real? Well, as you know, they, they talk about like wine pairings to certain meals. Yes. And I think it's like, what are the drug pairings with Eurovision? Yeah. After they perform and their whole teams in those little pods of couches or whatever, yeah. I'm like, oh, they are railing lines, baby. <laughs> Some of those people were having so much fun at the Olympics. Yeah. Like, it was crazy. That's, that's They're not drug testing yeah. at, at Eurovision. <laughs> Yeah. Thing. They're like, have fun. You just did it. Do the damn thing. Yeah, the drug, the performance enhancing drugs that are illegal in Eurovision is auto-tune. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So now that we have a little bit of a sense of your Eurovision background, I think we can begin our game. First up is Svetlana Loboda, who represented Ukraine in 2009 with Be My Valentine. She's thrusting. <laughs> they just, they lifted her up like a prop. <laughs> they said, we're gonna spin her around like it's color guard. That's hysterical. Honestly, gaggy and very effective. I'm kind of obsessed with her. She's giving Shakira vibes to oh, me. Totally. Oh, that was hot. She was up on the shoulder. Oh my God, she keeps going. Ah! Oh, I love her. Oh, now she's playing drums. And they're dragging the dr Oh, I'm obsessed. Good for her. 
I'm kind of obsessed with her. Right? She's a fun girl. I would tip her. This is a bar. I'd be like, take my fucking money. I, I've never thought that like a drum set needs to be mobile. But like, <laughs> but, now, but now, don't you feel like every drum yes. set needs to be and mobile? Like, why aren't they? I will, I will, I will not tolerate a stationary drum set. Yeah. For yeah. <laughs> would you consider this a cooter smash or a cooter pass? That's absolutely a cooter smash. The Eurovision fans agreed with you. It was a pretty underrated cooter smash. It was 12th in the competition. Okay. But that's still the top half. 14 years later, she can probably still do that. Listen, if there's one thing we've learned about Eurovision performers, these people will keep going until their last breath. <laughs> <laughs> one of the previous winners we saw was Linda Martin. I think she's around 70. You will have these like 19-year-olds in the audience that are like, Linda we saw Linda Martin perform. Yeah, so and the club in Liverpool, it had two stages uh -huh. that were right next to each other. I was like tripping. She took the stage at midnight oh on God. one yeah. side of the club and it was this amazing performance. And then she left the stage and then I was very hot. So I was like, Magnus, I'm going to go get a breath of fresh air and come back in. So like <laughs> I left, took a breath of fresh air, went back in the other side, like out of my mind tripping. Yeah. And I walk in and Linda Martin is giving the exact same performance in <laughs> the next room. And you're like, did I just, and I'm like, like did I, I just go through time? I know, I know. <laughs> I, before Charlie had a chance to message me, I remember messaging you, you going, thank God you I was did. like, oh my God, Charlie, you must be so confused right now. <laughs> you must think you've gone through the yes. time portal. That she's was, doing the exact same set. Because yes, also not only is she doing the same set, she's doing the same like, like jokes banter. that seem like she made up on the spot. She, yeah. I, did I watch the whole performance again? Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So this is Javine, who represented the UK with Touch My Fire in 2005. All right. We are sponsored by Mr. Clean Multi-Surface Cleaner. Oh. And for the gays listening, that is not for douching. Right. Surfaces, <laughs> nothing inside. Yes. We also are sponsored by Fairlife Milk, also not for douching. <laughs> <laughs> A milk ad in 2023 is bold. <laughs> <laughs> Hot. Love this dress. The backup dancers look like Guy Fieri. <laughs> She's cute. I know the lyrics already. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very, very vivid. Yeah. All right, now we're at the dance break. She's moving. Some floor work. Hot. A little seat rollback. She's gyrating. I like her. Okay, hot. Hot. She's doing breaths. She's fun. I'm not gagging yet, but she's fun. So, Game starting with the girl that has been absolutely just like, just thrown around the stage. That was tough to be the second one that I'm watching. Yeah. It was good. Okay. It was good. I was waiting for more. I'm going to go with Cooter Pass. I can't be too nice. You nailed it. And, and the it Eurovision it. fans agree with you. It, when she was doing the choreo, she didn't seem like in it. You yeah, know what I mean? It's, it's, the choreo didn't feel in her body. Yeah. yeah. It's not necessarily that the moment itself was terrible. It's just that the vocal performance wasn't great. It needed a big... Something it needed. It was underwhelming. Yes. It was a build up to nothing. It was yeah, yes, hundred yeah, percent. Yeah. It was not enough to save the fire. The hard thing about Eurovision is the fact they cannot lip sync and they cannot have auto tune. Yeah, which obviously for the sort of dancier world of popular music can be hard. Are they allowed to do backing vocals? Because I didn't hear that on hers. Or it can only have six people on stage. That's the max. Okay. And before last year, all of the backing vocals had to be done by those six. So that's why a lot of people would be like, we're going to have two backing vocalists and then three dancers and then the artist. And then we've used up all the people we can have. But now, you know, we see more dancing happen because the backing vocals can be in the track. I didn't realize they were only allowed to have six. I watched one. It was the year that we were watching. 2012, is that right? Uh, yes, Azerbaijan. And there were these cute little old ladies. They were adorable. <gasps> the Russian ladies. They were so the happy to be there. Uh, they should be allowed to have 50 of them on stage. They were also, so happy and so cute and waving. I think that's the beauty of Eurovision, where well, the first act you, you saw and the, these grandmas can be in the same competition. Absolutely. So next is Estonia's entry in 2014. This is Tanya's Amazing. Tanya's Amazing. I love a girl with a bang. <laughs> Fierce. Just lifted, just, just held up, just a solid foot and a half off the ground. It's effective. Okay, fun. It's giving me like sweetener, Ariana Grande, defying gravity, like upside down type situation. The bird visuals. Okay, this is fun. I'm turning it up a little. Ah! I didn't even see how she got up there. 
This man's hot. All the men are really hot. Yeah. Okay. That was hot. I liked it. Impressions, thoughts. Yeah, I'm likes, gonna go dislikes. with a soft smash. Uh, it definitely wasn't a pass. Yes, a but I'm not like yeah. Yeah. Right uh, I will say a, a lot of what you say there. I agree with. This is one where I disagree with the fans. Yeah. This didn't even qualify for the finale. Okay. That's not deserved. Yeah. What's kind of wild to me about that performance is that. A lot of the things she's doing are what people do in dance breaks. Uh, she's fully singing. Yeah. yeah. While being lifted, wild. while... And, and there are moments when you're just like, how are you spinning around we'll and see. knowing what she's doing? And Not choreo, a bad vocal And also the choreo is actually interesting. Like, there are, like, versions of these moments where it's kind of like someone lined up all the people and they're like, okay, now you turn. Now you flip. Right. Now you do this. But that number, there's a real, like, kind of choreographic vision to this. Exactly. Like, she was fully still singing while, like, a 45 degree angle. It was good. Yeah. It yeah. was good. Okay, so moving on to our next one, we have a an entry from Turkey in 2009. Uh, this is Hadis with Doom Tak Tak. This is cute. She's beautiful. Everyone's so pretty in this competition. The guys, the girls. I don't particularly love that there's one guy in... Like Hunter Green off to the oh oh someone's someone's tumbling go off <laughs> they came out of nowhere that was really good actually slay little dance break he'd be turning does he sing at all no it's no just he, he's just there to bounce <laughs> I can tell <laughs> listen don't knock being just there to bounce yeah <laughs> my uh, grinder screen name just is. here to bounce just here to bounce just here to bounce, just here to bounce. <laughs> I'm going to go with a cooter pass. He was impressive. I wanted her to be a little more interactive with it. Him being like, I come out here and I do the trick. Right, you could have anybody. You can throw anybody in there that could do a yeah, trick. Like, 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 look over there. Yeah, it feels like they have nothing to do with yes. the performance. There is this like category of Eurovision performance where it's, We'll just throw a couple of contemporary dancers on stage and they'll like kind of but like... But they're like on two different stages. Yeah, they'll, yeah. they'll yeah. like flit around the the lead, the singer. Where it's just like when you try to put both in the same frame, they're yeah. kind of both out of frame. It's just yeah. like a giant wide shot. <laughs> I and I'm say, on mushrooms watching it. Like, yeah. is that supposed to be a flashback? Being like, like, why are is they so far away? Yeah. between them? <laughs> it's really... Uh, but according to the fans, the Cooter Smash, it came in fourth. It just didn't feel very cohesive. Yeah. When I watch like drag performances, I see girls that can like do tricks. If you're just like throwing yourself on the ground during random parts of the performance because you need applause. The way people talk about comic timing, there's certain things like a trick timing. Yeah. Putting together the videos for this where I wanted it to start like right where the um, athletic moment was going to happen. Super easy for this one because it always happens in the yeah. same place. It's like, all right, and two thirds of the way through, Found it. we get the break. Yeah, exactly. really shock them with a final big chorus. Yes. Right. Now we're going to really fast forward here okay. to 2023. Okay. This is solo performed by Blanca. We got some pyrotechnics. Ooh, the stage has really upgraded. Over the years, they have so much more tech. Okay, fierce. Oh, she's turning it. Yes, kick. Oh, this is great. I love this. It's not like her dancers just doing all the impressive stuff. Yeah, she was holding her own with them, dancing the exact same choreo during that dance break. Oh, I love her. I like her a lot. She's good. Also, this dress is gorgeous. I want one. I'm going to go with a Cooter Smash for that one. It wasn't like tricks per se, but it was a very effective dance break. Yes. And she was dancing just as well as her dancers. She didn't like employ dancers to like make up for where she lacks. Yes. Not to speak for you, Charlie, but I think it's fair to say that we both agree with that. However, the audience didn't quite. Definitely placing 19th, I would say, was still very far above expectations. And I think part of that story is that between her national final performance and this one, she added choreography and she reworked the entire act. It's sort of like an interesting trend that's happening. Taking a song, plopping down a dance break right in the middle of it, clearing the stage, letting your performer just go yeah. at it. Now, moving on to our final video. This is Spain's 2022 entry, Slow Mo. 
and the artist is Chanel. Gorgeous. I love that there's a jacket little situation with this, so it doesn't just look like the Mugler bodysuit that everyone wears. (laughs) Fierce! I like what they did with the lighting for this. She's moving, she's moving. Oh, yes! Oh, I love her. Oh, she's great. This is a fucking pop star. Yes, little seat roll to <laughs> Dramatic. Also, she sounds great. Right? Oh, she's hot. She gives me like a Dua Lipa Rosalia hybrid. Slow-mo. Oh, I loved her. That's obviously yes. a cooter smash. Once again, she was dancing with her dancers. They even had like flirtatious moments where you like they're communicating not just like moving limbs near each other exactly <laughs> first of all your vision fans agree with you i don't think i've ever seen choreo like that with entirely live singing like yeah, yeah. that's pretty insane like maybe on like beyonce or taylor swift's tours you see like this kind of level of production but it's insane because they go 26 songs in a row yeah they and if you're on postcard. mushrooms it's 42 songs <laughs> yeah because you're like wow yeah. and then suddenly linda martin shows yeah, up yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's on a third stage at the same time do we have any takeaways for you know watching those numbers back to back what it it takes to make a number like that pop smash smash <laughs> Pop um, smash. I have Yeah. <laughs> uh, I I do think it's probably very difficult for men to win. Is that correct? It's a good. Oh my god! I'm so this. excited for the Eurovision men's rights activists that are about <laughs> to like crop up after this. I think it's a similar thing you see in pop music, where it's like it's really hard for like a male pop artist to try and compete with what Lady Gaga or Beyonce or these artists can bring. It's the difference between like when you're at a wedding and all men have to do is get a suit. You think about last year and like some of the big like male winners are like, they stand center stage, they sing because it's thought of as a family show because there's both a younger audience, but also an older audience. There is a thing of the crooner that doesn't really exist in pop music all that That's much. Fair. What are you left with after this little deep dive into Eurovision? I just love the theatricality of it. It really is a talent show in its truest form. American Idol, it's like, you get so much backstory. This is kind of like, here's the one time that all of these people are together doing their thing. It really is based on this one solo performance. I do wish that there was somewhere that audience members could go to get a little bit more context for the performers <laughs> they're going to be seeing. Like I think a if podcast, the, maybe? I, I don't a know. Pod- Izzy, thank you so much for being on the yeah, podcast. Seriously, thank you so this much was for amazing. Me. Thank you. This was so lovely. Thank you so much to Izzy, Suri, Herman, and Sashko. And tune in next week for a very special Friday release because Wednesday is a national holiday. It's uh, Charlie's birthday. Everybody gets the day off. Yay! And then on Friday, we're going to be talking about the Eurovision spinoffs. I mean, the American Song Contest and Junior Eurovision in particular are flashpoints in the Eurovision community, so I think we're going to have a good time with this one. But in the meantime, we hope you have a wonderful week, and until then, Happy Eurovision! Eurovision.